Lord, would you let us be with you this morning in everything that we do, but right now, would you let us sit at your feet, shape us and teach us, make us more into your image, Lord, we pray, amen. So, something that's become really a big thing, it's a good thing, is finding one's self. It's a good thing it's become a bit of an obsession. I believe we live in times where it's not really all that easy to find oneself, to know oneself, to sort out and see clearly. So it makes sense that people would be giving a lot of attention to this. The thing is, perhaps ironically, finding ourselves does not happen just by looking inside. It happens through a kind of an interplay or a balance of relationships and self-reflection. Self-reflection is important. It's a part of it. But there's a balance to it. There's also relationships. Good ones, bad ones, tough ones, happy ones. We find out who we are as we interact. And we reflect on those things. And there's a pattern to this. I think the positive way to understand that is that human being is too much, too wonderful, too complex, too big, made for relationship with others and relationship with God. We are made in the imago Dei, the image of God. And that's a deep and mysterious and wonderful thing. So that finding ourselves may not be that simple is not a surprise, and it's okay. Two things that matter in this. The first one is we're made for relationship, as we said. The second one is our lives are gifted to us. None of us brought ourselves into the world. All of us were dependent on the love and kindness of others before we were even able to conceptually think about taking care of ourselves. And the truth is we continue to be dependent on the love and the care of others. So this morning, in this profound and wonderful psalm, Psalm 139, we find an example of a person who is in relationships and ultimately in relationship with the God who gave him life in a period of contemplation and self-reflection on what it means to be a human being in relationship with the one who gifted him life. It's 24 verses. Psalm 139 is beautiful. It's also a little bit on the longest side. I think it's a good, you know, call it a cup of tea psalm. It's a good one to settle into. It's a good one to sit with and not hurry. One of the things about poetry is because the language is beautiful and because it has a rhythm to it, if you're not careful, you can work up a pace. But if you work up a pace, I mean, a, you know, a fast pace, then you lose the connection, the feeling side, which is so important. This one's a good one to settle into. So this morning, we're just going to take a little bit of a slowish, simple walk through this psalm. Now, the, before we get rolling... Bad, bad word, before we get crawling, the, 
the way this one works, 24 verses broken into four sections. And what happens is when we get to the fifth or sixth, especially the sixth, sometimes the fifth bleeds into it. When we get to the last verses of each section, there's really a hinge moment in them. Everything that 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 section has been contemplating raises a question. If you will, the fruit of that contemplation raises a question or a thought or an idea. It raises something that comes from it. The next section then picks that up and reflects back, leading to its own, if you will, thought, question, bigger thing. And then it moves to the next section. And at the end, it circles all the way back to the beginning. Not a surprise that there's a pattern. Not a surprise that it's brilliant and beautiful and simple all at the same time. So the first move. The first move is about, if you will, the greatest relationship that there is. Lord, you have searched me out and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thoughts from afar. This is good news. There was a time in my life where I had hid from this psalm because I didn't necessarily want God to be around. And I didn't really want God to know what I was doing. So I didn't like the fact that this psalm told me that I couldn't get away. That's the upside down way to read this. This is good news. God always with me, always knows me, This is, you never walk alone. You examine my path and my places of rest. You are acquainted with all my ways. Companionship, accompaniment. We never walk alone. There's not a word on my tongue, but you, Lord, know it all together. We never speak into nothingness. Even when we cry out with groans too great for words to express because we're too whatever to put together a coherent thought. We're not speaking out into nothingness. God is there. He's accompanying us. He hears us. He knows what our voice has said. You have enclosed me behind and before. Again, is it not a pen? This is surrounded in secure love. You have laid your hand upon me. We are touched. We're not estranged, alone, far away. God is near, and he's with us. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, so excellent I cannot attain to it. And here the transition begins. We're being introduced to a mystery of the depths of who we are. Where shall I go then from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? Happy security. So then we come to move two. And here in move two, the psalmist is going to take us places. Where can I go? Well, let's try him out. So here we go. We're going to go places. If I climb up to heaven, well, of course you're there. Good heavens. No pun intended. If I make my bed in the grave, though, let's flip to the other side. You're still there. There's still hope. There's still accompaniment. 
If I take the wings of the dawn and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, if I get going as early as I can and go as far as can be imagined. The Jews were not a seafaring people in this time. They dreaded the sea. They feared the sea. This is, for instance, the gospel story we read this morning. They're afraid of the sea. The storms could come up quickly on the Sea of Galilee. In the beginning, the Spirit of God hovers over the chaos of the deep. They're not a seafaring people. So he's saying, even if I went unimaginably far, for us today, this would be like, even if I went out into outer space, even if I fell out of the space capsule and was floating out in nothingness, no matter how far I should go, even there, even there, you're there. Even there shall your hand lead me. Your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me. If I were in a place of darkness where I can hide and nobody can find me and I'm depressed and I can't face light and I just want to curl up and just not be somehow. Then shall my night be turned to day. God is determined to be with us. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as clear as the day. He can handle it. He knows us in the midst of it. The darkness and the light to you are both alike. Just meaning they both, God can function in them both. It's a poem. Don't take everything too literally. For you yourself, the transition begins. We've gone places. We've tried to go as far as we can go. We're going to stop now and go inside even before we were able to have the opportunity to be aware of ourselves. You yourself made my inmost parts. You knit me together in my mother's wounds. We go from the ultimate outer limit to the place of the greatest vulnerability, the gestational period in our mother's womb. We go as far as possible from the outer to the smallest and the most dependent of all of our lives. And still, God is not only there, but he's forming us. So we come to the third move. What does it mean then that God has knit us together? What does it mean that God has formed each one of us? I'm just going to read this section without stopping to talk about it. I'm just going to read it slowly. Just give attention, just notice the adjective words or the descriptive words, the words that talk about what it means that God has knit you together. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My bones were not hidden from you, when I was made in secret and fashioned in the depths of the earth. Your eyes beheld my substance while I was yet unformed. And in your book were all my members written, which day by day were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. How dear to me, O God, are your thoughts. How great is the sum of them. If I were to count them, They would be more in number than the sand. When I wake up, I am present with you. 
In your book are all my members written. God hears your voice at all times because he has imagined you. He has written, woven, whatever, whatever analogy you want to use, brought us perfectly into being. And he knows you through and through, has made you uniquely yourself. Two things to notice in section three. Where is the seat of this self-knowledge? Marvelous are your works, and my soul knows it very well. In the depths of our soul, in relationship to our God, sitting with him, talking with him, in the deepest place, connecting with him, which leads to, how dear to me are your thoughts, O God. Great is the sum more than the sand. Contemplation, reflection, listening to God, being with God. And now that we're completely relaxed and feeling very secure and happy and bucolic, what on earth happens next? This is the, hmm, what happened here section of the psalm. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O oh God. Depart from me, you bloodthirsty men, for they speak unrighteously against you. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those, O oh Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? Indeed, I hate them with a perfect hatred. They have become my own enemies. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Try me and examine my thoughts. Look well if there be any way of wickedness in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. What happened? Change gears, right? Did we change gears? Yes, we did. All right. What on earth? The psalmist is so wrapped up in God's goodness and love that going out to face the realities that he faces feels like a gut punch. He's in that secure, bucolic, Thank goodness, you know me, you knit me together, I'm okay, I'm heard. And to go out and face the realities that he faces, it just he just feels like, oh. To go from the beauty and security of you, God, into all of that stuff. One clue to help us with this is the little word perfect. We've talked often about how, in Greek at least, the word perfect is really misunderstood today as you know, completely right or good or whatever. For them, it means full, whole, end. So this is what the theologians call eschatological. This is a feeling of hoping for the end when God will make all things right and new, when God will be all in all. This is complete idea. God will be all. This also touches into, especially with the eschatological bit, it touches into the way that many of the Psalms work. Yes, it's about David and his life and his heart and his reality. It's also in ways that David knows a hint of, but not fully, looks ahead to Jesus. Jesus will identify himself with all the Psalter and with this it out on his enemies, he will head to the cross with it. 
and going to the cross, he will unlock the things that need to be unlocked to lead to God's new world when God is able to sort out all of these things. This is not a verse that justifies a kind of Christian political national violence. I read a long article in The Atlantic this past week, something like The Woman Who Bought a Mountain for God. Anybody see that one? It's a, it's a long read. It's a description of something called NAR, the New Apostolic Reawakening. It's basically where the Christian right and Christian nationalism have sort of gone and come together as they hyper-spiritualize everything they're doing. And they talk about spiritual warfare all the time in everything. And they believe that the odds are that it's going to spill over into actual warfare. This is not a justification for that. This is not comfortable, section four, to read. But Jesus doesn't go that route. He goes to the cross. Paul does not go that route. There's nowhere in the New Testament that this is interpreted in that way or in any way that would let that work. God sorts this out. I know it doesn't totally make sense to us, but the word perfect here is actually a help and a hint. So also are the last two verses again. Search me, circling all the way back to the beginning, and know my heart, try me, and examine my thoughts. Look well if there be any way of wickedness in me and lead me in the life everlasting. That's Jesus' stuff. David knows he can't say that. This is the same man who wrote the psalm that says, I'm a worm and not a man. He knows what he has done and who he is. David, if anything, has a heart after God's own heart because of his self-awareness of his failure and his repentance of it. These are words that look ahead to Jesus. This part of the psalm looks ahead to the cross and all that that unlocks. So, friends, we find ourselves in a balance of self-reflection and relationship. The deepest core relationship is with the one who gave us life in the first place. The one who knew us and imagined us before we were, as we formed. And that relationship was there with us, accompanying us, even unawares to us, all the time. He gave us life, and he gave us new life. There's, there's a priest in, I forget which state, it doesn't matter, you find him online, his name's Kenneth Tanner, really thoughtful, wonderful guy, he's kind of old enough to be kind of a grandpa priest, you know, you could call him Grandpa Ken instead of Father Ken, and it's in a very good way, it's allowed him to speak with wisdom. He wrote about some of these things on his blog a few weeks ago, the, the takeaway, the bumper sticker line was, God is your stowaway. So you've gone across the sea, you've tried to get away, you've gone wherever, things have happened, storms have come up, you've been afraid, you've sunk. God's been there all along. He's been stowed away on the boat. He's with you. This is also a moment of the exodus. Here's the last thing, fun thing. 
Psalter has 150 psalms. They break down roughly into five sections, and those five sections follow the Pentateuch, which are the first five books of the Bible. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This section, the last section, then, is like a poetic commentary, or, or yeah, a poetic commentary on Deuteronomy, if you will. There's a lovely, lovely verse in Deuteronomy where they're on the Exodus, and they've come to a hard spot, and they're afraid. And the Lord speaks to them, and he says, hey, come on, guys. Really? You're afraid? And he says, he says, don't you remember? In the wilderness, where you've seen how the Lord your God carried you as a man carries his son, all the way that you went until you came to this place. God has carried them. In spite of all the things that happened to them, in spite of all the things that were difficult, God was there all along, carrying them as if they were so we that they just couldn't do it. Because they were so we that they just couldn't do it. Let's pray, friends. I invite you to take a minute. Remember some times when you may have felt terribly alone. Just ask God. So you were there then, God. Let him speak to you. Remember your story. Where have you gone, inward or outward, for good or for ill, happy or terrifying? So God, you stowed away, huh? now, just take a look at your bones. Take a look at your ligaments. Take a look at something on yourself. You're fearfully and wonderfully made. Written together by God in the womb. He knows who you are. And He loves you. He holds the future bless you, God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you have done.